This is the John Clayton Show on 710 ESPN Seattle. Get in on the conversation at 866-979-ESPN. Now here's your host, the professor, John Clayton. 866-979-ESPN, 206-421-ESPN. Let's go to Jet in Seattle. Hey, Jet. Hey, John. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? Well, it's, uh, that's a mixed question. but yeah. So what's your impressions after three weeks, uh, the first three weeks of uh, the new Robert Sala regime? They're terrible. It's right, <laughs> now the wor- it's right now the worst team in football. Yeah. Even, even yeah. worse in Jacksonville, which is amazing. You know what's frustrating to me is um, in some facets, I'm not really seeing any change and or improvement from the last two years. And by that, I, I, I'm laying that on, on in particular, on, in, on, the, on the offense. In all fairness, um, I think the defense is held, holding up pretty well so far, certainly better than I could have expected. Um, while there's been a little bit of problem with the secondary, you know, it, I, <laughs> I was expecting far worse. And they're holding up reasonably well, and the kids are learning. Um, so I can't complain about that. The defensive line is slowly starting to come on. Quentin Williams is finally, uh, I think, playing himself into football shape. And he looked pretty good against the, the uh, Broncos, quite candidly. Mm-hmm. So I think if he can pick up the game a little bit, and, uh, you know, Franklin Myers isn't playing too bad, Futakasi was fine. You know, I don't think that's a real huge problem. And, you know, God bless Mosley, man. If he wasn't there in the middle of that oh, whole yeah. thing, he is the glue that keeps it all together. And he is playing at a high level. And uh, if he if he gets hurt, that defense I, I think will be totally screwed. It'll just it'll fall apart. But for the time being, I can't appreciate him more. Uh, he has really been the rock of that defense. However, on the offensive side of the ball, I really just couldn't be more upset at this point. And it's not the lack of Wilson's inexperience. That's to be expected. All right. But you know, okay, the, the, the Patriots gave me through four interceptions. Tough to come, you know, to come back from. But they ran the ball for 150 yards. All right, the first game they rebound a little bit in the second half. All right, but that still was a bit of a team collapse. You got a kid making his first start. But that, <clears throat> that Bronco game, that wasn't a Zach Wilson. You can't hang that thing on Zach Wilson. The offensive line could not run the ball. Again, interesting the difficulty running the ball against a four-three, as opposed to the success they had in the three-four of the. Uh, and a lot of the ISOs they're running against the uh, the Patriots, um, but what's really, really pass protection is not that hard, John. It's not that hard. It it starts with communication, and stunts are not that difficult to figure out when you're at that level. Mm-hmm. Okay, but these guys just cannot seem to get that together. I understand they haven't had a lot of reps. This is week week three. All right, and you got a lot of vet, you got some veterans there. You got one rookie. And then you've got one just total black hole in Van Rotten, and he is really oh you know I, I think he he fits his name because he's yeah, rotten clearly. He he and and the thing that makes me mad, John, is he was there last year. Okay, I think he was there the year before, but it's not as if they didn't have a good indication as to his abilities going into the season, and yet they still didn't didn't replace him. And don't tell me that Freeney's a viable substitute. I saw him play in preseason, and he's great if you need somebody to, to fill a hole for like the third, for third or fourth quarter because of an injury. But otherwise, you can't start. He's unstartable. Really, you can't come up with something better than Van Rotten. 
I mean, he, he is just a problem. But the thing that really is distressing me the most is the play calling, the play designs, and the personnel that they're using. I'm glad to see, and perhaps because it's just administrative fiat, but Denzel Mims is finally going to get suited up this week. Can you please, please explain to me the rationale for not playing this guy and constantly sticking, um, you know, the couple of midgets that they have there, Berrios and uh, Elijah Moore on the outside mm-hmm. where they just belong in the slot and not having a three, six foot three guy on the outside opposite of Davis? Please explain that to me. I and why, why, why does Mims need to know how to play the slot? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I just do not understand the justification. It just seems heavy-handed administration. There's got to be some pro- personal, personality problem inside, but you got to give you got to give the kid targets to hit. And and you know uh, a five foot seven guy that's you know twenty five yards away becomes like a three foot window as opposed to some guy that's six three that can high point a ball. You know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. And then. The schemes that they're running, I'm really having difficulty seeing the difference in the patterns that they're running compared to what Gaze was running. I mean, my God, how many times are these bunched together, these the two or three receivers bunched together in like a seven-yard window? Yeah, I yeah. Mean, you know, now Wilson's running for his life, but he's got nowhere to go with the ball, even if he knew where to go. So I'm sorry, but I'm not impressed by LaFleur one bit so far. And I'm throwing a lot of the blame, at least initially, right there. What's your thoughts? Um, and you have to put something on the coaches because you're right. It's, but also, it's like on what about Joe Douglas? I mean, has he gotten enough talent? I thought that he's had two pretty good off seasons of trying to build things up, and you knew it was going to take time because his team was so bad as far as lack of talent. Uh, but uh, you know, I'm not sold on the offensive line. Uh, certainly, I'm not sold on the defense. I think that they left themselves too short at the running back position. You know, the wide receiver is just all over the place, like you're kind of saying. It's like, uh, it's a mess. It, it's a mess, but, uh, I mean, I think you can throw some shade on Joe Douglas, uh, certainly with Van Rotten. Okay. That, that, yeah, that, I that mean, how do, how do you not replace him? Exactly. You knew what you had and didn't have last year. I mean, uh, John, I'm not an NFL executive, but I knew this last year watching this guy for 16 weeks. Mm -hmm. You know, I I just don't understand. I mean, my God. Let's let's, let's put Chuma Adoga in there, for God's sakes. At least he's a big body with some attitude. You know, even if he's not a guard, make him a guard. You know, I mean, anything has got to be better than what we're getting right now. Right. Um. But I think that the real indictment, quite frankly, and some of it can go to Joe Douglas, but I think the interesting battleground, if you want to call it that, is how they handle Mims. Yeah. Because Mims is a Douglas guy. He was a second-round pick last year, John, mm-hmm. and he was highly touted coming out of Baylor. And quite frankly, he played well last year when he wasn't hurt. And he played pretty well in, you know, in the limited exposure he had in the preseason and also on uh, the first week of the season. So... I don't know if there's some tension within the organization regarding Mims, but that's an interesting standoff between Salah and uh, and Douglas. But I think hopefully Mims will carry the day because he's got an awful lot of talent, and he's exactly what they need to help try to open this. Because he can take the top off the of defense, too. Right. Because right now they don't really have anybody or haven't been using anybody. And, you know, the thing that really was frustrating last week was, I mean, what, they have five drops? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the, Wilson doesn't have any safety blankets. I mean, Carter dropped a couple out of the backfield. Elijah Moore dropped a couple. Davis dropped a couple. You know, I, I mean, who's he to trust at this point? And, and, and as we've talked about, he doesn't really have a tight end, per se, that he can rely upon. Although, you know, I think Croft could, could help. But the system doesn't seem right now seem to be designed for that. So where does he go? Who's a safety blanket? And you know, God knows a kid needs a safety blanket, um, but that's not there and it hasn't been developed. So, you know, I, I'm right now I'm laying more of this on the coaching staff because I think some of the the, the, the talent is better than it's been the last two years. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's going to take another year or two to. This is a development year. Okay, we yeah. knew that. We knew that. Yeah. All right, and they still don't have enough talent. And they've got to add one more in another off season. Okay, so next year things should start be put going into place, and we should start to see continued success next year. And this year was going to be an ugly learning experience, but right now, I'm not really terribly impressed with how they're running their personnel, and uh, and how the offense is being handled at this stage. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's a mess. And right now, I'm laying that on the coaching staff because, yeah, I know they're they're a little shorthanded, but hey, come on. That offensive line, you got you know three veterans, highly experienced and not bad veterans, two tackles and a center, that uh, that, that should be playing better than this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and so I'm 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 not going to say they don't have enough talent. Uh, and Vera Tucker, you know, he's going to have to learn and improve. There's going to be mistakes, but I think overall he's starting to play a little bit better. He's starting to get the handle on things, and that's going to take time. That was to be expected. But they should not be this bad. No, I agree. Because again, it's like I mean, what they it took them until December to win two games last year, and now you look at the team and you say, when, when's their first win? Atlanta. Yeah, Atlanta's terrible. You're right, but I mean, right now the Jets are worse than Atlanta. Right now, yeah, yeah, they are. And so it's going to be interesting to see if they can muster anything against the Tennessee defense. Mm-hmm. Um. I don't. Uh, it's going to be interesting because they have their own problems, um, but but we'll see. It'll be yet another interesting test. And again, you just got to be patient. You know, take the lumps as the year goes on. But right now, I think the coaching staff should be. Do- I, right now, I'm hanging most of it on the coaching staff. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, some, something's got to give here. But uh, again, you knew it was going to be a bad year. You knew yeah. it was not going to be a winning season. You knew it was not going to be more than a four or five win season. And right now it doesn't look like it's going to be a four or five season. But again, the frustration for Jet fans. I mean, how are Jet fans holding up? Pissed. Mm-hmm. We're pissed, John. And I'll tell you why. Because we knew what we were walking into this year. Okay, we're stuck with yet another rebuild. All right, and we're about two years into it. And we got about another year to go, and this is basically a tryout. You know, let's put the system in, and we're trying not to see who fits the system. We, we understand all that, and we're willing to give Zach Wilson all, all the time, you know, he needs. And we, but we don't want to see regression. All right. Now, I, I know that you know they had they played a pretty good second half against the Panthers. Problems in the first first half. Okay, fine. I get that. They, you know, the offense outside of four, uh, you know, interceptions. They ran for 150 yards against the Patriot defense, and quite frankly, I think we're maybe seeing that the Patriot defense is not as good as we thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that was an, the 150 yards was an illusion or not. But then we go to Denver, who's got a very stout defense, incredible defensive backfield, and they they they, they mustered nothing. They couldn't run the ball. They couldn't pass protect. Uh, there was nobody getting open, um, and and so basically you saw a team regression. 
not just, you know, Zach Wilson having a bad day or a rookie problem or whatever. You saw a team regression, and that's, that's quite frankly, that's what's pissing us off, John. It's like that's what we don't want to see. We want to see the team getting incrementally better a little bit each week, you know, doing something a little bit better, you know, making, picking up on some of the mistakes that they were making previously, improving incrementally. You know, even if you're not winning, fine, but just play a little better each week or excel at something that you weren't really doing better at and you were not seeing that. Uh, we definitely didn't see that against Denver. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that, that is really the sense and the source of the frustration, John. I understand. Uh, we can handle mistakes, but if they're, you know, honest, you know, <laughs> stupid rookie mistakes, okay, that's going to happen. But, you know, when, when you got three out of, you know, actually four veteran offensive linemen that just can't pass protect, and I'm not talking about getting beat physically. I'm talking about not picking guys up. That, that's inexcusable. That's inexcusable. That's the mental errors from veterans is inexcusable. Yeah. And don't tell me that you don't understand the system. Mm-hmm. Now we've been in the league for ten years. Hey, thank you for the phone call. All right, thank you for being there, John. Okay, Jet. Eight six six nine seven nine ESPN two zero six four two one ESPN. John Clayton shows seven ten ESPN Seattle. This is the John Clayton Show on 710 ESPN Seattle and 710sports.com. 866-979-ESPN, 206-421-ESPN. Let's go to Rick in Twin Lakes. Hey, Rick. Uh, good morning, John. Good morning. It was another tough week for the Seahawks uh, yeah. last Sunday. I was uh, I watched the first half, but I couldn't watch the second half. I just kind of listened to it while I was on the computer. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I, um, I see a lot of the same stuff that happened in the second half of the Tennessee game. We got ran on. We couldn't cover the short passes, and it just looked totally unorganized. Um, the question I have for you, which is, you know, is um, do you find it difficult to be critical of the local team when you have to cover these guys? I know you have to interview them sometimes, and. You you know you see you're at the games and you're on the sideline at most of the home yeah, games. Because yeah. you recalled uh, you recanted a story that we used in Pittsburgh. Um, you wrote an article which uh, Chuck Noll didn't like, and they kind of gave you the the business. You know, a cold shoulder. Is that something that you you kind of wary of? Uh, no, because you kind of have to face guy or see him after you uh, write something about mm-hmm. him. Or, as long or, as long as you're accurate, uh, then you're you're fine. And that's yeah. the way I feel. I'm a reporter. Yeah, so it's like, a, you know, it's like when I come back and I say, right now the defense stinks, does that make uh, – does it sound like I'm uh, protecting the team or anything else? No. No, I'm just saying a lot of people, they have an opinion about um, – and I'm one of them. Yeah. Uh, I've been critical of Ken Norton. Um and, and, of course, Trey Flowers. I mean, you yeah. can't keep uh, trotting the same people out there expecting different results. Um Trey Flowers, he's tall, but he's not Richard Sherman. Mm-hmm. I mean, he can't locate the ball in the air, and we know that. But we, you know, he's back out there. And um, Ken Norton, I recall when he was defensive coordinator for the head coach. I mean, for uh, for the Raiders, and the head coach Jack Del Rio was uh, didn't like what he was doing, and basically unplugged his headphones and just he just stood there on the sidelines and not coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think he was an excellent linebacker coach. But I don't know if he can make um, if he's capable of making in-game uh, changes or the complexity of the of the defense overall. That's all I'm saying. I'm just talking about the good of the team. But um, 
I don't know. That's that's my opinion. That's a lot of other people's opinions um, that are out there. That's all I'm saying. I, I don't want nobody to, you know, to, to be fired, to lose their job. I know they all got families or whatever. They need mm-hmm. the money. They're, they're, they're working because they need the money. But, um, but, but, but you have to be a capable at your job. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, the, the thing is, is that, uh, you know, I, I just think, you know, there's always everybody wants to point to one person or two people, something like that. And then it's like, well, that's 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 where the problem is. And it's like you, you still go back in history and there's been good success with Ken Norton, Jr. OK, sure. As a, I mean, as a, as a position coach, but not as a defensive coordinator. Did they win 12 games last year? But not because of him. Well, in I mean, spite of him. Did, no, it's like they won 12 games last year. Did they get better as the season went on? On defense. And the answer is yes. I still say not because of Ken Norton. It was nothing that he. Okay, well, John, I don't want to argue with you, but I, I just see things differently. But uh, we'll agree to disagree. Okay. Uh, I look. Uh, they're going to have some tough games coming up. Um, they can beat the 49ers, but they have to make some changes. And, and play a lot better, but mm-hmm. it's going to be a real tough for them to uh, uh, when they take on the uh, the Rams. Um, yeah. And I, I'm uh, I'm a Seahawks fan. I, I had season tickets for quite a while, and um, I can you know you kind of know the team and you kind of see things happen. And I kind of uh, I was just kind of concerned. I'm just voicing the concerns. I'm I'm all for them when they play well, and I I'm, I'm, I give them the credit and I, I praise them. But you know, just like, uh, but when they're not playing well, I I just try to point things out that I, that I see, and I'm not right all the time. But I'm just saying that. But sometimes mm-hmm. I see things that that are really quite obvious. But um, anyway, John, you have a nice day, and I hope okay. the Seahawks do better. Hey, thanks, Rick. Eight six six nine seven nine ESPN two zero six four two one ESPN. Let's go to Bob in Bothell. Hey, Bob. Bob, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Sorry, sir. Okay. Um, thanks for taking my call. I would like to get your opinion on the Ronnie rule. Um, it was indicated, it started in 2003. 2019, we 18th had, um, had vacancies in coaching. Only one team selected a black coach, and that was the Miami Dolphins. In 2020, they had three black coaches, the same number of coaches when that rule was started back in 2003. Mm-hmm. I look at the Seahawks and I, I don't get offense by this, but I sometimes when I listen to Pete Carroll, I think I'm listening to a used car salesman when he talks about minority issues. Cause I'm a minority. I'm Hispanic and I face the racism here in the West side of Washington when I grew up here in Redmond. And when I listen to him, and I look at the sideline and I see his son as the receiver coach and, you know, just like, what is it, what's going on? How come it's so hard for a minority, a black person or a Mexican or, you know, not Mexican because they don't play football too much, but mm-hmm. someone, a person of color getting a job in the NFL? How come Doug Baldwin wasn't called in to say, hey, you know what, you're one of our best receivers. Would you like a job? Did they even offer him a job? He wouldn't he accept it. To retire. He wouldn't accept it. He's not. He doesn't want to be a coach. He doesn't he, want to be a coach. He doesn't want to be a coach. Mm-hmm. You, you can offer him whatever you want, but uh, you know, it's like uh, he, you know, he's he's so involved in business. He's so involved in po- not politics, but uh, he's so involved sure. in the community. It's like uh, and 
<clears throat> really, when you think about <clears throat> ex-players, you know, it takes them time after they retire to be able to think about getting back and uh, getting into the game. And so it's like, uh, and again, coaching is tough because, again, you're not talking about th- these aren't eight-hour shifts. I mean, you're talking about uh, a long time in being in the office and a long time about being away from your family. So it's like uh, it's not that easy. But, again, you look at their coaching staff. I mean, what, what about the defensive line? What color are they on the defensive line coaching? Mm-hmm. What, what, I, what, I what, see, what, but, what okay, color? But they're black. Look, okay. Do, I mean, yeah, they're black. Okay, Deshaun Shedd, he's black, right? And, you know, they, they do, I mean, they're, they're, there's enough there. I agree with you that uh, it's horrible the way the National Football League is as far as hiring head coaches because there's not enough. I mean, again, I mean, you look, there's, there's two really good head coaches that are black down in Tampa Bay, Byron Lefwich and Todd Bowles. They didn't get jobs. Eric Bieniemy didn't get a job out of Kansas City. And again, these mm-hmm. things need to get fixed. But it's a matter that uh, we're not talking, you know, we're talking head coaches. We're not talking positions. Well, okay, if you look at offensive coordinator positions, mm-hmm. how many are black? Not many. There's, yeah, they're all white. But the, the, not all of them. Right no, here, it's like Byron Lefwich is black. Well, not all of them, but I'm just Eric saying. Eric Bieniemy's black. Or what? Yeah. Yeah, well, who you just mentioned, and he couldn't get a head coaching job. But there was rumor that he wasn't even really searching for the job, too, is what I've read on ESPN. Oh, he wants somewhere, uh, he, and I, don't, I, I know him too well. He wants a job. He does? Oh, God, so yeah. Do, do you think if Pete Carroll, like, you know, if everyone's so disgruntled, would he come to Seattle? He's under I'm contract. Saying, can, what if, he's, under con- what if. he's under contract with uh, Kansas City. And if he can't get a head coaching job, do you think he's going to leave Patrick Mahomes? No, that's no. true. <laughs> I mean, come on, be honest. That's it's like, oh, and I'm not criticizing Pete Carroll. I think Pete Carroll is the best coach the Seattle Seahawks have had, mm-hmm. you know, since this organization has started. But me being a you know a diehard Pittsburgh Steelers fan before the Seahawks were even there, I just always admired how that organization is just stuck by their guns and stuck with that coach. Right. And that's just. You know, to me, I just thought, wow, why can't we do that up here? You know, every year it seems Pittsburgh is always in the run, maybe not this year because of injuries, but every year they always seem to be in the run for a playoff spot, if Mm -hmm. not an NFC championship. I'm sorry, AFC championship. Right. So, hey, thank you for your call, sir. All right. Hey, thanks, Bob. 866-979-ESPN, 206-421-ESPN. Gary Hill from the Mariner Broadcast coming up next. John Clayton Show, 710 ESPN Seattle. This is the John Clayton Show on 710 ESPN Seattle and 710sports.com. And joining us is Gary Hill from the Mariner Broadcast. And boy, that was a tough one last night because in the typical sense of where the Mariners are, you know, typical type of game. It's a one-run game going into the final three innings. And, of course, uh, you know, they set up things like they normally do. Like they had first and third, nobody out. Uh, didn't get a run there. And then you know, they open up the ninth inning. And then Kyle Seeger gets a double with nobody out. And, you know, he doesn't get a chance to score. And so, uh, in the end, it's like a tough loss because now they're – they're uh, behind the Red Sox after the Red Sox had a stunning loss to Baltimore on Thursday, which gave the Mariners the ability to tie up this race for the second wild card spot. Yeah, it was a tough one. You know, it's funny, too. The way you set it up, it was perfect because 
up until I think that last ball was in the air for the final out, I think me and I think everyone else in the building just thought they were going to come through again because we've seen it time and time and time. It was a very typical Mariners game, close, really good pitching, and you just expected them late in the ball game to get that big hit and score and tie the game and take the lead because it's what they've done so many times. So in that regard, it was a shocker because it, it never happened, and they had some golden opportunities, especially in the seventh inning with a runner on third and nobody out, and they couldn't push it across. And, yeah, so they had their fate in their own hands for a day, and now they're back to needing help again. They're at a point where they really have to win out. They have to take the next two. They have to have Boston lose at least one to the Nationals in the next two days. And that's when things get really interesting. So if we play this out, if the Mariners win out, Boston loses one, and Toronto wins out, it could be tied. If New York stumbles here in the next couple games, they could be in the mix for a tie. Things could get really wild in the next couple of days, depending on what happens. Yeah. Now, what, tell me, is, are there tiebreakers involved? Because that's the one thing. It's like if you have the same record, it's like uh, okay, then do you, do you have to do a play-in or something like that? But uh, you know, if where, where did because again, it seems like uh, you know when they want, when they got the uh, tie on Thursday, it was now the Mariners to lose. I mean, what did the Mariners have that give them the edge in being able to get this? Uh, spot if they are tied with Boston? So there are tiebreakers, and things get pretty complicated. If Let's say it's a three-way yeah. tiebreaker. Let's say Toronto's in the mix. And I'll try and explain this the best I can. I'm not sure if I'll do it well. So with a three-game tie, uh, three tiebreaker, three-team mm-hmm. tiebreaker, they basically take the records of your record against the other two teams, and they compare everyone's records. So right now, Boston has the best record against the Mariners and Blue Jays uh, compared to, like, the Mariners against the Blue Jays and Red Sox. So Boston would essentially get a chance to draft if they want to be Team A, B, or C. And the decision is, if you're Boston, do you want to play two games but both at home, or you just want to play one game but it's got to be on the road against the winner of either the Mariners or the Blue Jays? So that's the calculation if you're the Red Sox. You will have the choice to play at home, but you have to win two games, or play on the road, but you just have to win one game. I actually think it's a really interesting strategic decision, especially if the Mariners end up being that team that beats the Blue Jays, and Boston has to fly to Seattle, theoretically. If they win that, they'd have to fly back to Tampa Bay, which isn't really easy. So things get pretty weird in a three-game. Things get weirder in a four-game, but that's kind of how uh, that tie would work. If it's just a Mariners-Boston tie at the end of the day, the Mariners would fly out right after the game on Sunday, uh, day game in Boston the next day on Monday, game 163, and the winner would play the New York Yankees the next day in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. So that would be <laughs> that would be a wow. wild scenario, and one I think we would all love to see. So it really is going to be a, it would be a play-in type of game as opposed to yeah. – uh, you know, a game or games, depending on where it goes, uh, as opposed to just automatically you look at the records and say, okay, this team has yep. the edge, like you do in the NFL. Yeah, you always settle it on the field in baseball. There's no tiebreakers that will eliminate anyone. If it's a tie, you always settle it on the field. 
Okay, that's that sounds interesting. But uh, so, I mean, how do you look back at last night's game aside from the fact that they had two innings where they had a chance to uh, you know tie it up or win it and not be able to do it? That was the ball game, and you know, pitching wise, Marco was solid. Just gave up two runs in six innings. The bullpen was great. They were lights out. I felt like they were really feeding off the energy of the crowd, which was phenomenal, by the way. The crowd brought it. It was just those offensive opportunities. They didn't get many along the way, and the two that they got, they just couldn't cash in. No long balls either, and that's something that we traditionally see in Mariners' wins is they find a way to hit a two-run, three-run home run along the way, and just – there just wasn't much going offensively in that one. It was very different than what we've seen in the past handful of games. And it's something against Oakland. They won four comeback wins in a row. And we just expected it to go down the same road again. But it's really hard to keep doing time and time and time again. So, you know, they're in a situation now where their backs are really against the wall. They have to win the next two. And they're going to have to find a way to, to score runs. There's no question about that. And what's it look like for the starting pitching? Because I know that Boston, uh, they have to kind of patch the spot on uh, Sunday because, uh, you know, they have to. So what's it look like from the pitching standpoint the next two days for the Mariners? Well, Mariners are in great shape. They're going to go with Chris Flexen today, who's been a very steady starter. Tyler Anderson will get the ball in the final game of the series. The Mariners are in much better shape than most teams. Uh, For the, the most part, the Mariners since the All-Star break, since Tyler Anderson came over, they've been handing the ball to a real bona fide starter every five days. And not every team can say that. You look at Boston today, and this could play into what happens against the Nationals today. The Red Sox are not going with the starter. They're going with Tanner Houck, who's a talented righty, but he's been pitching out of the bullpen. So here they are, a game they have to get, and they're going bullpen day. So uh, Sale and... Now, Baldy, their two best starters, pitched against Baltimore, and they only won one of those two. Uh, it's not a deep rotation right now for the Red Sox, so they're going bullpen day to day. Meanwhile, the Mariners get a chance to go to what has been one of the most starters in the American, uh, most, one of the most solid starters in the American League, and Chris Flexen. So, advantage Mariners in that regard. But uh, they got to get the win one way or another, any way they can get it. They've got to get the win. But it's going to be interesting to watch how the Red Sox game plays out. And the other factor is, when the Mariners take the field today, they're essentially going to know. The Red Sox are playing in the day today. Uh, the Blue Jays, Yankees, uh, they'll mostly all be complete by the time the Mariners play today. Hmm, interesting. Uh, what, what, talk about Jared Kelnick and how he continues to grow as not only just uh, you know, a, great, a great rookie, but now one of the leaders on the team. He really is, and it, it was fun to watch him step forward in the interview a couple of nights and plead for the fans to come out, and they certainly did. But we've seen his growth. He had a really good September, hitting the ball with authority consistently, a number of home runs. But it's really been a steady climb for Kelnick when you look at the last few months. He's done some really good things underneath the hood that eventually will lead to number success. We've seen him cut the swing and miss rate three months in a row it's gone down 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 his hard hit rate has gone up three months in a row so that's been a steady climb so there's been a lot of good things happening for jared Kelnick at the play and i give him a lot of credit too because he's been put into a situation where he's had to play center field every single day every inning of every game because the mariners have had to have it they've had to have him in center field 
So he's had to play center. He's had to bat against everybody. There's been no protecting him. He's faced every tough lefty, uh, every lefty starter, every lefty out of the bullpen. It has not been an easy road for Jared Kelnick, but we've seen him make some real progress. And he's he had an excellent September, so we'll see what he can do the next couple of nights. How would you compare him, and I know this is probably unfair, and the way he's developed the, this year to the developments of Ken Griffey Jr. and also Alex Rodriguez? It's a really good question. I think it's really hard to compare because I think the current hitting environment is harder than it was when Griffey and A-Rod came up. I think the current hitting environment is really, really difficult. I also think from the conversations that I've had, there has never been a bigger jump between AAA and Major League Baseball. And it may be unfair, too, because you're comparing Kelnick to, I mean, when you look at when Griffey and A-Rod came up, those are generational-type talents. I mean, those are (laughs) two of the best prospects we have ever seen in Major League Baseball. So it's a tough comparison in that regard, but I think the hitting environment makes it really difficult. We have seen, we're always focused on the Mariners, which, which is understandable, but when you look at young hitters who have come up all over baseball this year. There have been struggles. Even Wander Franco, when he first came up, he struggled out of the gates. Now, he turned things around. He's been great. He has been really, really good for Tampa Bay. But there haven't been a lot of young players who have burst out of the scene and have just hit right away in this current environment. And it's just going to take time. And uh, it's going to take patience, and it's not only going to be Kelnick. We've seen it with Cal Raleigh, and we're going to see it with other young hitters that come up for the Mariners, too. This is just going to be what happens. No doubt. It's, but it's, it's great to see. And uh, overall, I mean, <clears throat> I think you, you can look at the, the position players. and I was like, J.P. Crawford has been incredible. Yeah. He's been a star. He's been so good for the Mariners. Uh his defense, of course, we knew all about that. He was a gold glover last year. He's got a good chance to win it again. And I think he's really come into his own as an offensive player. He has found his offensive identity, and that is just spraying the ball around, being a pest at the plate, getting on base, and helping set the table. And it gets overlooked at times, but he's got 37 doubles on the season. Uh, if he gets three the next couple of days, he'll have a 40-double season. There's only one Mariners shortstop in history that's ever had a 40-double season. That's Alex Rodriguez. So it's not just, uh, you know, it doesn't have a ton of home runs, but you love the double power. That combo between the offensive player that he has turned himself into and the defensive player he is, that's a really, really good player. Good for him because he's put in a ton of work. He's finishing the season really strong. He had a great September. And good for the Mariners, too. I feel like he was kind of, when the Mariners did the step back, I feel like he was the initial target. That was the first move, bringing J.P. Crawford over. So, in my mind, he's kind of always been symbolic of what the Mariners are doing right now. And to see him come through and turn into the player he is has been phenomenal. And then, outside of that, he's just great. Uh, he has a connection with the fans. His name is chanted every time he comes to the ballpark, and that is a hard thing to do. That kind of connection and the kind of love hmm. between himself and the fans has been certainly fun to watch. Which players have impressed you the most from the bullpen? Oh, <laughs> so many. There's so many. So uh, 
It starts with Paul Seawall to me. Yeah. Uh, Scott Service has called him the MVP of the team, and I, I'm not sure I disagree with that. He has been phenomenal this year. And you think about his journey, cut loose by the Mets in the offseason. He, he was working on a bunch of stuff with the front office, the analytics department. He didn't start the he didn't even start this year with the Mariners. Yeah, he was at the alt site to start the season. He was the opening day starter for the Tacoma Rainiers. His journey since then has been fantastic. He has been one of the best relievers in baseball. His strikeout rate is among the best in baseball. When you talk about the best relievers, he is right there with the Hendricks of the world, the Kimbrels of the world. That's the kind of season he has had. He has pitched in so many high-leverage situations. I mean, we know how many one-run games the Mariners play. They're in these close games all the time, and Seawald is right in the middle of all of those. He has been nailed. You can't say enough about Casey Sadler. He's not been scored on since the end of July. This scoreless streak, I'm not sure he's ever going to be scored on again. He has been so good. And Drew Steckenrider as well. He's been phenomenal. That three, and the thing they have in common is anonymous coming into the season. Yeah, You didn't know what to expect from those three guys. And here they are, three of the best relievers in baseball. And they've helped form one of the best bullpens in baseball. And the exciting thing to me is uh, the development steps they've taken and how they've worked with the front office, the coaching staff, the work that they've put in. We'll see if the Mariners can continue to replicate that with other pitchers. But also... You're adding Giles and Munoz to the mix next year as well. This has a chance to be a very fierce and deep bullpen next season, which is very exciting. Gary, we're looking forward to uh, hearing the game tonight, watching the game tonight. It's a big one. They have to win the next two games. Thank you for joining us. Anytime, John. Always good to talk. Thanks again. Hopefully right. we're talking playoffs next time we chat. That would be good. Uh, Gary Hill joining us. And, of course, we're taking your phone calls at 866-979-ESPN, 206-421-ESPN. John Clayton Show, 710 ESPN Seattle. This is the John Clayton Show on 710 ESPN Seattle and 710sports.com. 866-979-ESPN, 206-421-ESPN. Let's go to Ken in Spokane. Hey, Ken. Good morning, John. Good morning. Hey, so I have a question. Here's the thing. I'm a diehard Mariners from the get. I yeah. sold peanuts and Pepsis at their first season. And I'm watching the game last night. We have a leadoff triple by Terenz mm-hmm. with Toro up, wide open. The shift's on, wide open, left side of the field. Why did they not call for the bunt? Yeah, because I mean that would have tied the. But again, it's like, it, 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 dep- it depends how the individual is bunting the ball. And like you know, for example, Kyle Seager is sensational at it. I mean, it was Kyle Seager, he'd be bunting the ball. But again, you know, you bunt the ball. I mean, you're you know, you're giving yourself an out. But also, if you don't bunt it the right way, you're not going to get the guy to score from third base. Well, when you have a wide open field, when the shift's on. That's the that's an easy that's an easy run, John. Mm-hmm. I you know turn around at least at least he should have tried the first strike on a bunt. Yeah, I mean, just, bunting's funda- fundamental baseball. I yeah, watched but, but, the but, Yankee game right before. Yeah, but again, it's like I, I bunting's the, not fundamental in this current game. I mean, again, I'm not saying you know it's like there, there's not a lot of teams that do the bunting. 
I watched the Yankee game right before that, and it was the same scenario. Guy on third, wide open, shift was on. Mm-hmm. And they laid down a bunt. There was nobody there because they're all on the, you know, third baseman's almost to second base. You have a wide open left side of the field, wide open. Yeah. To at least try the first strike. I mean, it was, uh, I don't know. I, I don't understand the Mariners baseball and you don't understand the Mariners baseball and they they're they they this is their best playoff run since 2001 and you don't understand them I mean I, that's like that's that's crazy Ken it's like I understand that that's their their, their best run here's but the the guy right that spoke just a minute ago he said the long ball we did not have a long ball Mm-hmm. And we didn't have a three-run long ball. Well, when we play, and the Mariners have been notorious for this, when we play long ball, you live and die by the long ball. If you watch the Astros, they play small ball. And look where they're at. But that's, also, you're, you're talking about a more you're talking about a you're talking about a more talented team in the Astros. But they play small ball, John. So and small ball wins baseball. You play to the and talent you that play you play to. Ball. You play to the talent that you have, and the talent that they have is that they have a bunch of guys that can hit the long ball. And it's like you, you, you're going to criticize the team. You know, again, this is one game, and again, they needed to win it. But again, okay, what's the difference between a bunt and a fly ball to left field? Or fly ball to right field. Fly ball gets the run in from third base. They had three batters to be able to do that. They had three batters to be able to come up and try to get a single. They didn't do it. They, they've done it all. They've done it all year, right? I mean, you know, that's why they're in the position they're in because they get into the seventh, eighth, and nine innings, and they get somebody on board, and then they drive them in. Right. And you're going to you're going to criticize their style. You're going to criticize their style for what's got them in a position to be where they are. I don't get it. It didn't work last night. I'm not. I'm not criticizing them as a whole. I'm criticizing that Scott did not call for Toro to lay down a bunt uh. when we had a wide open space there on because the shift was on and mm-hmm. at least try, at least try the first pitch, mm-hmm. the per, first strike, and then go from there. But because the bunch a lot easier than laying down a hit. We we can agree to disagree on this one, okay? Can we do okay. that? I mean, I just I mean well, again, I disagree. Well, I mean, how I don't know how good of a bunter he was. If he wasn't a good bunter, Charles is he's a pretty decent bunter. I've watched him lay down bunts. Uh, he's a decent enough bunter. Yeah, well, okay. That's what I said. One strike, the first strike, at least one strike to just give it a whirl. Mm-hmm. And you got two more strikes. Toro's very good at, on on second or uh, two strikes on him. He's a, he's great at it. So he could have at least tried the first strike and then went for a strike two and, and three the next two strikes for a hit. But I don't know. Like you said, we're going to have to de- agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. 
fundamental baseball wins championships. Well, right now they had they they didn't get the runs in last night, and so it's like that's one game, and it could cost them the chance to make the playoffs. But again, it's like. Yep. Uh, the, the, these guys are batters, and they want to, you know, it's like you get the chance to bat and drive them in, and they just didn't do it. Hey, Ken, thank you for the phone call. Hey, thanks, John. All right, 866-979-ESPN, 206-421-ESPN, John Clayton Show, 710-ESPN Seattle.